Welcome to another episode of Inside the Law. My name is Mark Gavigan, and it is my great pleasure to have as today's guest, Jason Wells. Jason is a former federal agent with the United States Secret Service. He protected Presidents Obama, Bush 43, Clinton, Bush 41, and Herbert Hoover. Oh, gosh, I don't know if it was that far back. You're looking a little young for Hoover. Jason is the author of Our Path to Safety, A Guide to Creating Safe Communities, and we are going to delve deeply into that book. He is also the founder and chief executive of National Advancement for Proactive Safety, NAPS, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to training parents, teachers, and communities in how to observe, assess, and act on concerning behavior in others before it evolves into a violent rampage, such as the Columbine shootings or Sandy Hook massacre. Jason, this is very personal to you, and it's really, it seems in the last few years that this has maybe become your life's work. Uh, Right in the introduction of Our Path to Safety, you tell the story of a very dear friend, Heather, who was like a sister to you growing up, and her involvement in a violent shooting rampage. Can you tell us about that? And I want to make sure to focus on some of the heroic bravery of Arthur Daniels. Sure, of course. First off, a lot of people who've read my book uh, immediately bring up Heather. Heather had such a, a profound impact on their life, I think because it, it, it brought a personal aspect to, the, uh, to these horrific real-life situations that occur that we typically only read about in the news. Heather is quite real. A lot of people have asked me if, if she's a, um, a character who I created based on several individuals, and that, that's not the case at all. She's very much real. I, I did grow up with her, um, and I have a very close relationship with her to this day and, and her family. When I wrote the book, my introduction was not going to be about her at all. I felt like that was a very traumatic event that had occurred in her life. And I did not feel it was my place to ask her if I could add that to my story. Heather approached me. She knew about my writing and knew about uh, NAPS and the work that I was doing. And she had approached me. It was fortuitous. It was about three weeks until I was wrapping up uh, my first edits on the book. And she called me out of the blue and said, I want you to know how important this work is that you're doing. And if there's anything I can do for you to help you out, please let me know. I said, well, you know, Heather, if you're, if you're offering, I, I, w- I was going to see if you might be willing to let me talk with you a little bit about what, what happened and, and maybe even write it. I'm, I'm finishing up my book. And I didn't know how she was going to handle that. And she was, she was extremely uh, delighted to help out. She said, absolutely. Anything I can do, I, I will be happy to, to talk about. It. And, um, so we, we met that weekend um, at, a, at a little coffee shop that we, we both knew uh, in the neighborhood that we grew up in. She still lived in the neighborhood that we grew up in, and um, I, I drove down to see her, and uh, it was really nice. We had a nice uh, four-and-a-half, five-hour conversation, and, and um, to, to hear her, her insights and, and her experience and, and the way she described the detail, and, and it, was, um, it was very moving. I don't know how else to describe it, and uh, I'm so sorry we lost people to the Navy Yard shooting and um, but I'm so grateful that she's okay. I can see in your eyes and on your face how deeply this is affecting you, even if oh, sure. you're reliving it now. Oh, sure. I, I, that's exactly right. I, I was remembering it. Um, I remember the conversation with her and uh, how uh, just how impressed I was. Uh, if you knew her family, you, would, uh, you, you wouldn't be surprised. That's the kind of people they are. I tried to do the best I could with the intro chapter, and it seems like a lot of people uh, took to it. Uh, they seem to have liked it. So uh, it made them want to read more, <laughs> which is good. Can you walk us through what that story is? 
on the morning of uh, September 16th, uh, 2013, <clears throat> a contractor who was assigned to the Navy Yard, an uh, individual by the name of Aaron Alexis, uh, entered uh, the Navy Yard building um, and with a shotgun and a pistol uh, began, began um, randomly shooting the, the facility. Um, there was uh, lockdown drills in place and they were um, activated. People were, some people were able to get out of the build, the building where he attacked building uh, 197 and he, uh, he wandered the halls and looking for victims. Uh, when he came across an individual, he attempted to shoot him. Um, sometimes he was successful and sometimes he missed. Uh, he was familiar with the facility. He was familiar with the, uh, the security measures. Um, and he had had previous uh, conditions that uh, suggested that this was a long-term buildup in his psyche um, that led to uh, a violent reaction. Eventually, um, and I don't mean to say eventually that it took a long time because it didn't. The response was extremely fast based on uh, security for uh, the Navy Yard. But um, there was a, a gunfight. They ended up um, cordoning off, uh, the security ended up cordoning off um, Alexis and there was a gun battle for approximately 30 minutes. At the finishing of the entire massacre, 12 people had died, one of which was the assailant, Aaron Alexis, and eight more people were injured. Obviously, hundreds of people were traumatized. Arthur Daniels mm -hmm. was incredibly generous and, and heroic and self-sacrificing. What happened? The way I understand it, the way from my research, Arthur Daniels was an employee at the facility, a civilian employee. He was a personal friend of my friend Heather, and he had been on a, a smoke break with one of his uh, coworkers. Uh, I believe it might have been his supervisor. I believe, and I'm not 100% sure on this, I believe that he had quit smoking, but he went to go spend the break with his friend. His friend didn't want to smoke alone. When they were out there, that's when Alexis began attacking at about the time that they were outside. So when they walked back in to the facility, there was gunfire, and they they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Arthur Daniels had the cognizance and the uh, presence of mind to see that there was something very bad happening, and he could have run. And from what I understand, he turned... Uh, according to his his coworker, who whose life he ultimately saved, in my opinion, he turned, he pushed his coworker back through the door that they had just come through, closed the door behind him, and um, he was a victim to Aaron Alexis, and he died there. He was killed there, um, saving his friend. Is the way I understand it. I I don't know how. I'm I'm ashamed that. When I think about what I would have done, I probably wouldn't have been, I would have acted, I probably would not have acted so selflessly or bravely. Um, and that's just, I, I don't know. 
I don't know how I would have been or how anyone would have, I don't think anybody can answer that until they're in that position. But um, that man, that he can, that he did do that, um, it, he should be remembered. They he, all should be remembered. He, I think, in particular, choosing. It's not as though it simply was imposed upon him. He made a decision to try and protect other people. I it. agree. I agree. I think that's great, and um, I think it's a, it's a, it's not great. I think it's um, it's very powerful. It's it speaks to uh, character. It speaks to high character. Amen. My uh, my friend Heather told me um, when she spoke about him, she was not surprised. She said that's the kind of person he was. So, yeah. Well, we remember Arthur Daniels today and uh, his so. heroism, and, yes. and as you said, what wonderful character sure. this man had. Yes. With respect to the shooter, we're going to get more and more into this, but mental health. This is a person that clearly had an awful lot wrong mentally to be driven to a point where he would undertake these acts. From a general standpoint, what in this country are we not doing correctly with respect to diagnosing and caring for people with mental health issues? What's very important that we, we, we get out right now that I, I made very clear in my book is that the vast, vast majority of people who have any kind of a mental health condition are not violent people. We need to understand that. And the other thing I want to get across is that we should commend these individuals who take it upon themselves to get the help that they need and, and commend the, the community that supports them, both uh, the personal and the professional the people who support them and recognize it as it not being something that is a, a taboo or something that we, uh, we look at that should be a, a negative aspect. That's, that's not it at all. We need to applaud them for going and getting the help that they need and the medical professionals who help them. It's important that we get that across. I think that there is a, a negative stigma even to this day uh, with regards to mental health that people look at it and say, you know, well, you know, if that's, if that's not... Uh, if they've got issues, quote, or if they have, if they're taking medication, quote, that's, you know, I don't know if they're, they're all there, but there are individuals who need more help than others. It's, uh, and I am not a medical professional. I'm not diagnosing any condition, but in the case of Aaron Alexis, there was a, uh, a history of having some um, unhealthy, uh, violent behavior and coupled with some medical conditions that he had been uh, diagnosed with, some mental health conditions that he had been diagnosed with, that he uh, chose to not get himself the appropriate help. And uh, it appears that there was some steadily increasing violence that stirred in him. Do I think that we have the systems in place to help people like Aaron Alexis? I absolutely do. I have no doubt about that. I believe that we have the individuals, the professionals who are, who are there to help, and I think they do an excellent job. I think we need to do better at identifying those conditions. And you don't have to be a medical professional to identify some early conditions. You make a wonderful analogy in your book where you say, look at fires. I mean, we are all conditioned and we all have a responsibility mm -hmm. to identify and report a fire that is dangerous. And you walk us through in this book, and we'll get into a lot more detail, mm -hmm about how to recognize what is a dangerous condition in mm -hmm. somebody. And here are some steps that we can take to, to 
have our eyes open and really be paying attention, friend Heather. Yeah, I absolutely uh, will. T- I will say that um, I think that the vast majority of uh, situations that that occur are based on people not acting because they convinced themselves that they were overreacting when they saw something. They, you know, if they saw a condition in an individual or they saw something that made quote the red flags go up in their head, they said, "Well." I'm overreacting. This is me. They internalize it. They say, you know, I, but if you're feeling like that about a situation or a person, chances are that other people are too. And it behooves you to take some, some proaction. Uh, does that mean to call 911 or call the cops? No, not necessarily. It may. It's a case by case basis. But to turn the other cheek or look the other way is not the right answer. Because now that allows individuals like Aaron Alexis to continue to act in a way that may cause his degradation and cause uh, a, a, a violent pattern eventually. So I guess if there's one word that I would say that I, I wanted to get across to in my book was empowerment. It's to empower people to do something, to say, you know what? I'm not going to do anything. I wasn't going to do anything. But you know what? I remember this guy, Wells. He wrote a book about this once. And I remember he, he put something in there about this. Maybe I should look that up. And now there's a book there on, a sh- on their shelf, or I hope there is, <laughs> that, that they, they would be able to open it up and they could say, oh, yeah, you know what? He said something about this. Maybe I should call a guidance counselor. Maybe I should call a human resource specialist. Um, if you're a corporate office, that's where a lot of these things happen. You know, corporate offices... One of the first things they do on day one, when you walk in and you sit down with the HR department, they give you a bunch of paperwork to fill out. And one of those things that they give you is emergency contact information. And you fill it out and you give it to them. Well, I encourage corporations to use that emergency contact information. Call the family. Call the friends. If There's nothing that says that this is a confidential matter and you can't call them. If you're recognizing something with someone in your office who is having some issues, then it behooves you to contact your HR representative or your supervisor and let them know, hey, they need to be using that emergency contact information that they provided when they first joined this company. And they need to be calling their family and friends. And get those family and friends involved. That's what family and friends do. And I can almost guarantee you that the emergency contact is going to be a family member. And I'll tell you, if you see it at the office, they're seeing it at home. And it adds to the case to get somebody help. And this is all proactive. It's not about getting someone arrested. It's not about getting somebody a record or getting somebody a stigma. It's about getting them help that they may need. They might be going through a crisis in their lives, a short-term crisis. They might be having a major change in their lives. And it's about getting them help. The point of your book is to teach and encourage people to observe, assess, and act on potentially life-threatening situations before they result in tragic outcomes. And you say that it's the responsibility of everyone in the community to be the eyes and ears for identifying and acting on danger. But then at the same time, I'm concerned because I don't want to overreact and blow up this person's career. Or if I'm a high school student, I don't want this person to be forever trailed by the rumors that, oh, he, and it's mostly males, he's a weirdo or the Unabomber or whatever else. And kids can particularly be cruel. How do I balance between those two very important concerns? 
It's a gr- it's a great question, and it's a tough situation to address. I would honestly suggest that everybody in the in the hierarchy who would be contacted be aware that this is a proactive approach, so that they themselves are not reacting or just shooting from the hip, so to speak. That they're not just uh, you know that it, it needs to be a thorough, long term process, and there needs to be a several tiers of vetting to ensure that the individual who is in question is not being um, targeted unnecessarily. I think what we have right now is that there is a administrative responsibilities, but when it comes to work, when it comes to schools, when it comes to, uh, when I, when I think of how the process would work in a school, I typically go right to the guidance counselor. Uh, when I talk about going into an office or a corporate environment, I typically go right to the human resources office. They tend to be the guidance counselors of sorts in the in the corporate environment. When it comes to a personal aspect, family, friends, it becomes a family friend decision based on the the patriarch or the 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 matriarch of the family. We need to ensure that those guidance counselors, those human resource specialists, those leaders of the family are sensible to understand that this is a case-by-case basis and not an administrative process and that it needs to be assessed accordingly. That makes great logical sense. And I see what we're trying to prevent here. I also come back to, I'm really, I'm torn by this. I come back to if I am wrongly reported and this ties into what you said earlier about there being such a great stigma and lack of understanding about mental health issues. If I am wrongly reported or correctly reported, where do I go to get my reputation back? I don't know. And it's a valid point. And because even though, I understand exactly what you're saying, because even though administratively, the paperwork may say that you're cleared, you still have to interact with the other people on the day-to-day basis. How has that affected your relationship? How has that affected your career? How has that affected your time in school? All of it is very valid. I truly believe that in a lot of ways, if people police their own in situations like this, people will know what they're not supposed to be doing, what they're not supposed to be saying, what they're not supposed to be at. But to not say anything or not do anything is the worst thing we can do. I would rather us have a society where we can, where we, we are all comfortable with recognizing the possible dangers, the possible red flags, and have a false report than not have any report at all. It's also something that evolves over time. Even though I, well, literally wrote the book on it, I am not, <laughs> I am not the end authority on it. People will come up with better ideas and ways to make this work, but it we can't even have that until we're playing the game. And right now we're not doing anything. We're not doing any assessment. We're not helping. We're not teaching children what to be watching for. We're not teaching this in, in, in businesses. We're teaching reactive measures. We're teaching lockdown drills and we're teaching how to close off school doors. And, and I think that's great because there's a time, no matter how preventative we can be, we also have to have a deterrent and we also have to have a reactionary answer to those ones that slip through the cracks. But I would like to get to the point that we are 
looking for those future dangers, we're not doing that right now. We're waiting for the dangers to come to us. We're waiting for the dangers to come to us in our schools. We're waiting for it to come to us in our offices. That's why we have lockdown drills. And because people are under the assumption that we cannot identify the threats before they arrive. And that's just not the case. And some of the things we're going to go through later with, in your book, you actually walk us through. Here are the indicators, the mm -hmm. behaviors, and things that we may not catch all of them, but we're going to catch an awful lot. And it sounds like, to carry an analogy forward, the way you're saying, look, it's better to have a false report than no report. It's almost like the fire department that would say, listen, if there's a carbon monoxide alarm that goes off in your house, don't just shut it off and pull the battery. Call us. We want to come out. We'll have 20 false alarms so that we can catch the one that's real and prevent five people from dying in your house. Right. We brought up the fire analogy earlier, and I'm very proud of that because it is, it's a very uh, recognizable uh, analogy. Everybody knows it. And the reason everybody knows it and understands it is because at a very young age, you were taught, this is fire. This is what it is. If you see it in this way, you know, on a campground, then it's safe, you know, in a, in a safe camp environment or in a fireplace. If you see it in a building, as the building is smoldering to the ground, this is bad. You need, and these are the people you need to call to do that. Don't run in there and fight the fire. Get the professionals to come in and fight the fire. They don't expect you to just look for fire and then pull the fire alarm. They are proactive to the hill. And if you look back over the last 50 years at schools, how many children have died in a fire in the last 50 years in a school in the United States? Zero, not one. Have they had fires at schools? Absolutely. Do they have fire drills? Absolutely. Do they have training measures to identify what to do in the case of a fire? Yes, they do. Have they had fatalities at schools based on fire? No, not in the last 50 years. They train it, they drill it in people's heads, people never forget it, and then you train your children to do the same thing. We are creatures of learning habit. We can learn how to prevent all kinds of catastrophes if we know the indicators to look for. That makes perfect sense to me. In our path to safety, another part of the answer might be whether to report or not report. You talk about listening to yourself, listen to your gut, listen to something going on in the back of your mind and those indicators that if, if I'm uncomfortable, if I feel like something's wrong and it's really eating at me, don't just shut down what is eating at me, pay attention to it. And there's a book called Protecting the Gift and it's, uh, oh, it's uh, Gavin, uh, DeBecker. Gavin DeBecker. Sure. Yeah. Wonderful book. And it's, yeah. it's made to teach parents to get children mm -hmm. and, and the parents themselves to tune into their inner voice saying there's a lot of power there uh, and a lot of predictive sort of inner technology, so to speak, that when our radar is on and it's saying something's not right about this situation, act on it. Don't be quiet. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's connected to some of the material in your book. Well, I definitely will tell you that um, Mr. DeBecker has been quite an inspiration from his, uh, his Gift of Fear series and the work that he does to this day with his uh, extraordinary organization. And I have, the, I have the utmost respect for everything that he's done, and I agree. I personally, I think that if Mr. DeBecker ever gave me the privilege of reading my book, he would read it and go, 
I was saying this 20 years ago. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I have to give credit where credit's due for that. Uh, coming from not just as a writer, but as a, a former law enforcement officer who um, specialized in studying uh, behaviors in individuals. There's a huge draw from that and um, from his, his, exper- from his uh, information. So credit where credit's due. And I agree. I think where I help out people with our path to safety is that right now people may recognize that something's going on. They may have red flags going off in their head, but I really think that what makes people hesitant to act is that they don't have a comfortable understanding of a definition of what they're seeing. They lack the definition. They see something happening in a person and they say, or they see something, a a way a person is acting, uh, multiple ways, multiple different things. Uh, I make that clear, I think, in the book that that one indicator is not enough. You really need to be looking at a a comfortable uh, volume, a comfortable amount of activity, and then uh, possible multiple indicators. But to see somebody do one thing one time, I, I don't think that's fair to say. To see one person go online at school one time to a, uh, a firearms website or something or look at a picture of a firearm, I don't think that's fair to report somebody under a condition like that, uh, which may answer your question from earlier about what we need to be looking for. There needs to be a, um, a pattern, a comfortable pattern. And even when there is a pattern, I genuinely believe that people would be hesitant to act if they don't know the definition if they don't understand that this is actually a term that's being used you know that that this person is undergoing for example somebody may be having a major change in their life a major change for the negative they may be going through a divorce they may be going through a sudden job loss and now they've suddenly they've had a shift in their their change well negative changes sudden negative changes in a person's life uh, cause high levels of stress and those high levels of stress could cause something radical to happen um Am I going to say that they're going to go out and do violent activity? No. Am I going to go out and say they're going to do something uh, uh, suicidal, have suicidal tendencies? No. But you don't want it to get to that point. You want to recognize that they're having major changes in their life and we want to deal with it before it gets to those serious concerns. People will tend to not act if they don't know that a major negative change in a person's life, that there is actually a definition for that, that you need to be cognizant of rather than just look at it and go, hmm, there's something going on with them. I mean, I know they're getting divorced and all that and everything, but I don't, I don't know what that is. So I'm just gonna, ah, they'll be okay. I'm overreacting. I'm sure they'll be fine. And I'm overreacting. Those tend to be the two things right there. People say, people internalize it and say, I'm overreacting, or they look at somebody else and say, ah, they'll be okay. And our path to safety provides a framework so that layperson on the street, like myself can look at something and then stack it up that, against what you've put together. Like, here's how to look at these things. There are some impressive medical journals that start to address this psychologically and, and behaviorally, behavioral studies. And, and I am by no stretch an individual like that. But I wanted to at least provide some kind of, a, as, you, as you say, a lay definition for individuals, for our, um, our parents, our families, teachers, coworkers to uh, have a, a quick reference guide and, and to see the where the material came from, where it was referenced from, uh, the research. And feel free if, if my uh, simple writing is not up to the intelligence standards of the reader that they can go and find it and read more in depth. But this is a, what I think of it as is a nice starting point for someone to have a, a guide of sorts for every day.
I think of it as a cliff notes of sorts. That's that's a great way to look at it. cliff notes. Absolutely. Sure. I can get the essence right. of all these right. different things. And right. if I need to dig down further, you get right. resources. Right. If, if you're writing your uh, your doctoral thesis or your uh, a dissertation on it, I, I'm flattered if you use some of my references, but I don't think that I'm your guy. You may want to dig deeper. Well, so, this interview yeah. is over. All right. So we're out of here. Okay. We've got up. But sorry. Jason, I read an article you originally posted on Quora. Mm -hmm. It was reposted on Fatherly mm -hmm. on the web. And tell me how to teach kids to be safe around guns. That's a, that's a tough situation. Firearms, guns are such a, a polarizing conversation in our country right now. And I will tell you that my background, in addition to being a, a federal agent, one of my collateral duties was that I was a, a firearms instructor. So I, I trained other agents in firearms in every aspect, not just uh, shooting and um, uh, weapons retention and uh, maintenance, but, but also in, in, in safety, safety for themselves, safety for their families. And that included how to talk to your kids or if you should talk to your kids, should you discuss firearms and and it it ran the gamut from individuals I spoke with I I knew individuals who to this day they've it's a very uh, open discussion with their children and their 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 spouses and their families and then I know other people that it's a um it's something that they it's, it's not meant to be discussed in the household I respect that I respect their opinions um I respect their 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 the way they run their homes I just want to get across that there is a need for understanding that there is a very dangerous tool in the home or, or is being required to be used. I'm probably inciting the wrath from all parties right now <laughs> from, <laughs> from, the, from, uh, anti, uh, anti-gun, um, enthusiasts to, uh, the, uh, the NRA lobbyists, but for myself personally, and I can't speak for anybody else, but it has been extremely effective with me. I have, I have not taken my children to a, a firearms range. I know individuals who have at a young age. They try to get their, their children in, instilled with it. Growing up in uh, the great city of Fredericksburg, Virginia, it was not unusual to know young children who were out hunting with their parents. And so they were exposed to firearms very quickly. Where I think it starts is with education. That is where I've always stood, is that you you being the firearm owner or not being a firearm owner need to start with the basics, the fundamentals with a child. I've taught my children very simply. My daughter was able to say it when she was 18 months old. I would ask her, what do you do when you see a gun? And she would say, stop, don't touch, tell an adult, I see a fire or I see a gun. Um, and that protected her with going to other people's homes. That's what I was concerned with. It wasn't about the firearms in my house. It was about what she was going to see in the other world, in the outside world. She's nine now, and to this day, she knows that if she sees a gun in someone else's home, she's to stop, don't touch, and tell an adult that there's a gun over there. Or it may even benefit her if she happens to see it on someone's person in a, in a public setting. She knows what it is, she knows what it looks like, and she knows that the most important thing is to recognize that other people recognize that it's there. Because most likely, the per whoever she tells is gonna do something with it responsibly.
put it away, make sure that it's empty, make sure it's out of sight. That is where the biggest issue comes with children and their harming themselves or harming or being harmed by someone else with a gun is they typically pick up the gun, they play with it, they want to be action heroes, and then they end up, uh, there ends up being an, a horrible accident, a horrific situation. So what I'm getting at is, is that in, edu- it starts with education. That feels to me like core information as you've done. You've drilled this into your daughter's head, just like don't get in a car with a stranger. Absolutely. I don't think that, I think where we have, and uh, I'm getting on soapbox a little bit, but again, I respect people who are, who don't want firearms in their home. I do. That is their right. That's their privilege. And I will defend it. And I respect people who want to have firearms in their home. Again, I respect that. and It's their privilege. But that doesn't mean that we should not be educating our children on the danger of firearms and how to appropriately deal with the situation. I'm not telling people who don't have firearms to go to the range with their kids and, and learn how to use one. And I'm not telling people who have firearms to put them away and not bring them up. We have to educate our children that these are very real tools, that they are very real in our society in abundance And if you don't think that your child is going to come across people who have firearms in their home, on their person, or in society, you have blinders onto the world. That's just the way the world is right now. I'm not debating politics. I'm not debating that we need to have stricter gun laws or that we don't have gun laws. I'm I'm talking about the now. The way the world is now, we have a healthy abundance of firearms in 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 our national community. Nobody can dispute that. If you want to dis- if you want it to change, then I encourage you to do that. If you don't want it to change, if you want there to be more of them, go right ahead. But for the now, we need to teach our kids that they're there, and this is how you should be dealing with them. I want to go back to some of the material in your book, and it's there's so much here. So I, I realize you've got to probably touch on things rather than delve deeply into all of them. Um, but with respect to targeted violence, you mentioned it's rarely impulsive and that it's usually very meticulously planned and rehearsed. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, a lot of this training, a lot of this, these things that I've, I've written about, it started with um, my training with the Secret Service. We were trained, a lot of people, uh, I think that there's a, a misunderstanding that, that the, the U.S. Secret Service is a, an agency that uh, trains uh, professional bullet catchers, that they are there to, to jump in front of the bullet and, and take one for the man. And, and um, you know, this seems to be a, uh, it's a very dramatic, uh, romanticized situation in pop culture. And um, I can assure you that, that the real mission of the Secret Service is to do everything that they can do to ensure that that impossible split-second decision is never made in the first place. And that is proactive safety to a, an extreme degree, to one that I, I would say no other protection organization in the world rivals. And part of that is um, identifying threats to individuals who uh, they protect, such as the president, the vice president. And they, they have their own division, a very, uh, a very large aspect of the, of the organization, which is called uh, a protective intelligence division. And the protective intelligence division trains agents throughout the field to identify threatening conditions and threats that are being made and then to 
go and address those threats. Now, when I say address, people automatically think, well, you know, oh, that means I know what he's saying, wink and a nod. You know, they're going to throw him in a in a in a in a stone cold you know steel cage room where they'll never see the guy again and he'll disappear. Well, this isn't this isn't the Soviet Union. This isn't North Korea. We're America, and the United States Secret Service, I can assure you, does not act like that. They and this is all going to start sounding really familiar here. You know, if you've read my book, you're going to go, wait a minute, I. I remember Wells talking about this. Maybe the Secret Service is already doing this, and they do. What it is is they go and meet somebody and they'll who might be making some concerning statements or threats to someone that they're protecting, and they they work with their family and they work with their business and their corporation or organization or their schools to get that person help. That's where a lot of this comes from. Namely, these individuals are focused on a one-target violent action. They want to go and do harm over a long period of time. They may have had a sudden mental breakdown. They may have had changes in their life that's caused a a, a nervous breakdown. And now they're focusing their anger or their animosity, their angst at someone who is very polarizing. Politics has a very polarizing nature to it. I don't know if you know, but you know, there's not a lot of people who like our president right now, you know, and there, and the president before that, there were a lot of people who didn't like that president. And there were a lot of people who didn't like the president before that. And, And so these people tend to take that 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 personal frustration that personal challenge that they're experiencing and they 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 target it into um, a focal point which is someone who they perceive as not well liked anyway and that's how it goes (laughs) you mentioned in your book that every single threat or implied threat even in the internet age is followed up upon all the way with the secret service with the secret service yes in matters of um the first family or the people that are under their umbrella of protection if they are notified of it which they should be if if anyone ever sees a a a threat or reads a threat online or they hear it in a in a in a setting somebody verbalize it they should absolutely notify the united states secret service local field office and i've had people who think that they have a, um, you know, they, they suddenly have a law degree because they watched a couple episodes of Boston Legal and they have tried to conflict what I've, what I've said. They've tried to go and hide behind the Constitution and say, well, it's my First Amendment right. It's my freedom of speech to say whatever I want. Well, no, it's not. And I'll tell you why. Because First Amendment is a freedom of religion also. And that doesn't mean you can go out and sacrifice people if your religion says that you have to go sacrifice virgins on an altar. So the Constitution does not protect you from, from committing any crime. And it is a federal crime to threaten the life of the president and the first family and the people under the umbrella of the Secret Service. And it's 18 U.S.C. 871. That's the federal purview that protects the president and the first family from threat to include direct threat, such as I wish I want that individual to be killed, veiled threat, which means... You're not directly saying it, but you're implying it. You can't even do that. So what's an example? And let's say, fill in the blank with such and such directed towards President Gavigan. Uh-huh. To draw a name out of this guy. Sure. So like a veiled threat would be like, you know, I'd be okay if somebody dropped a piano on President Gavigan's head. I think we'd hear that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and and that that would be a veiled threat because we know it would happen to you. It would harm you. (laughs) 
physically very much. And so uh, you can't do those things. And we see a lot of that right now. And I think a lot of times people just aren't, I don't believe that they, the vast majority of people do not have a genuine concept that they want to cause that person physical harm, but they also are ignorant of the law. What I can tell them is, is that if it is reported to the secret service, they will investigate that. They will investigate you. Does that mean they will prosecute you? No. But do you really want to have to go and tell your boss, your supervisor, or your parents, or your teacher, or anything that you had a an investigation against you for threat against the President of the United States or the first family? I could see where that would be problematic in your life. And I've had I've had to go and investigate many of them in my day. I had to go and interact with many of these people, and and they were mortified. They didn't realize what they were doing at the time. They were they acted uh, emotionally, and in this day and age of Twitter and Facebook, where people just pound something out on an, on an email real quick or, you know, uh, I mean, we see celebrities and, and politicians and, and news reporters do this on Twitter all the time. They, I'm not saying they make threats, but they say things that they immediately redact and then it, but it's already out there in the magical internet. So you just have to be very careful. You have to be very cautious about what you say and what you do. So that is very surprising to me that the veiled threat you illustrated is against the law to certain people. For certain people, for the, the those individuals under the umbrella of the United States Secret Service. The big one, obviously, is the President of the United States. The first family, the vice president, those individuals who are under the, the umbrella of the, the United States Secret Service protection would would definitely be a, a big no-no. Okay. That, that would be very bad. Yeah, if you want a, if, you, if there's a, a celebrity out there that you don't like or a, someone who was recently released from prison after being incarcerated, you know, and you put out there that you want to, you would be okay with a, a piano falling on their head. I don't know what crime, if any, you're going to commit or if you're going to call on the wrath of, a, of law enforcement, but you're not going to get a, a call from the Secret Service. Okay. So, so my neighbors are perfectly fine to continue being okay if a piano falls on my head. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's totally fine. The, uh, the other thing I say is, is that, and I think this is where people get confused, is that doesn't mean that you can't tell them that you hate them. You can't tell them that you not like them or that you disagree with them. You just can't threaten their life. You know, and there are lots of people out there who don't like President Trump right now. And they make that very clear in a variety of ways. And there were many people who didn't like President Obama, and they made that clear in a variety of animated ways. And they used a, a lot of colorful metaphors to express what they thought of those individuals. That's not illegal. That's fine. You just can't threaten their life. That is a terrific clarification. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a mis I think a lot of people misunderstand that. Myself included. Mm -hmm. The Secret Service expends tremendous energy trying to observe and assess and act on any threat trying to prevent targeted violence. Yes. But what you, it sounds like you're advocating is rather than just having these almost common sense preventative measures just to protect anyone under the veil of the Secret Service protection, let's teach everyone in the community to have their eyes and ears open and what to look for and be on guard for and how to act uh, if they find something. That's almost like saying, hey, let's take, instead of just having smoke detectors at the White House, we should have a smoke detector in every single home. That's exactly right. That's exactly the point I, I am getting across. Back in the late 90s, the Secret Service commissioned a group of individuals to start what they called the um, 
exceptional case study project. The ECSP was a study of individuals going back as far as they could who were affiliated with assassination attempts of various kinds. Not just individuals who had assassinated um, political leaders, but celebrities like uh, um, Mark David Chapman. He had, uh, when he assassinated uh, 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 John Lennon, they studied all of these individuals. Um, and I believe there were 47 in the study going back to 1950. And what they found was that these individuals showed similar, similar conditions, similar behavioral conditions. They didn't have physical similarities. They didn't have gender similarities. They didn't have um, a, a cultural similarities. They were uh, came from uh, very affluent families. They came from very uh, not so well-to-do families. Um, it ran the gamut, but their behavioral... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, excuse me. I'm just... You said they didn't have gender similarities, and I thought they were, in fact, almost all male. Almost all male, but they were not all male. Okay, not uh, universally male. No, they were not. Um, uh, Squeaky Fromm, for example, attempted to assassinate uh, Gerald Ford, and uh, she obviously is a female. So um, not the vast majority were male, but there were instances of females involved as well. So the exceptional case study project, what it showed was that there was behavioral indicators, similarities that are in my book. And those have an extremely high, in many cases, probability that if you see someone who is committing or has a propensity for violent action, that they are going to have these behaviors that they would have shown prior to the action occurring. That's the red flag indicators that we, we talk about in the book. The study goes back to the exceptional case study project. The point of this is, is what? Well, that the target doesn't matter. Mark David Chapman went after John Lennon because John Lennon was a, a rock star icon. He didn't do it because of his political affiliations or anything. He did it because he was obsessed with, with John Lennon. Squeaky Fromm went after Gerald Ford because he was the president of the United States. Adam Lanza attacked Sandy Hook because it was a school that he went to and he was mentally unstable. But they all had similar behavioral conditions. They just went after different targets. So the point I'm getting at is, is that the target doesn't matter. The behavioral indicators that we need to identify ahead of time are what's important. It doesn't matter whether they're targeting a school or a political official or a celebrity or their own family or themselves. Keep in mind, suicide is a targeting. It's a self-targeting. What matters is that we identify the behaviors that could lead up to the violent action of some kind, whether the action is against whatever the target is. How closely correlated are suicide and all these other types of violent acts? From what I, re what I recall with my writing, uh, the suicide level is higher with females. Males tend to typically will act out against another target, females will act internally. They'll internalize it and attack themselves. Similar indicators, females will turn it on themselves, which I think is, explains why you don't see as many females as uh, attacking or assassinating or harming locations. They're 
harming themselves. They're harming uh, their person. Uh, Amanda Todd comes to mind rather quickly. Uh, Amanda Todd was a, uh, a victim of cyberbullying uh, for years. She took uh, cyber, abu- cyber abuse from a, an individual who they, they recently captured overseas. He was in the West, uh, Eastern Bloc. But the poor girl had uh, developed a, a relationship, a friendship with this individual online through a chat net. And he had, uh, when she was, uh, I want to say when she was, she was 14 years old, he had asked her to expose herself. Um, so she showed this individual online, her breasts, and, uh, he captured the photos, captured the images, and then, uh, began, um, filtering through some of her social networks that she had allowed him to be privy to because they were friends, you know? And so he was able to quickly understand where, um, she went to school, who her friends were, and she started, uh, trying to blackmail her and say, you know, if you didn't, if you don't send me more images or do more, uh, heinous things online, then, um, I'm going to send people these images and um, she didn't comply. And that's exactly what he did. Um, and it, it led to bullying in real life. It led to her being, you know, children can be very cold when they want to be. And um, <clears throat> she became isolated, secluded, and uh, she, uh, she ended up killing herself. Um, and I believe she was 15 years old when she died. That's the, the quick, version of, of Amanda Todd, but, um, before she, uh, she ended up killing herself, she made a YouTube video. It's actually a, a I don't want to call it a popular YouTube video, but it's, it's one that is well known in that community. And, um, you can watch it and she's, uh, it's a video of her and she's made flashcards, which is a cry for help. And, and she wrote on each of the flashcards, help me somebody, please end this. You know, she couldn't escape it her parents moved several times, moved her to different schools and wherever she went, the internet was there and it recirculated and, uh, she couldn't get away from it for you or I, or as an adult, we probably wouldn't even give it a second thought, but for a, a young girl who's 14 years old, who's at the, at a, a very critical part of her life where her, her ego is, is, is being formed and, and popularity is so crucial and, and being uh, accepted in, amongst other females and, and all of it, all of it. And, and she was isolated and, and outcast for a simple mistake for what a young girl would, any of us would have done, you know, probably, you know, been stupid and just done, done a stupid little thing online. And ultimately she just, she couldn't handle it anymore. And I personally, I, I believe that when she saw her video go viral, which it did. It went very quickly. You know, so many people sympathized and nothing changed. You know, when you see that millions of people hear your cry for help and you see no change, if millions of people can't help you, then what, what do you have left? You know, you think that this is how your whole life's going to be for the rest of your life. You know, I think that's what drove her in the end. I really do. And that's sad. It's tragic. But anyway, that's an example of a female dealing with behavioral or sudden change, negative things, things happening in her life. And she didn't go out and her target wasn't anybody else. She didn't go out looking to go attack a school full of the people who were bullying her. She went and took it out on herself. It's interesting to me that you've gone through countless situations where you've got, you've dealt with probably terrible people planning to do terrible things. You've obviously read 
gazillions of pages of studies. And so you've got all this knowledge, but then when it comes down to an individual case, a person you don't even know, I hear in your voice and I see on your face once again, how deeply this affects you. I think that's fatherhood. I think as a parent, I think that's what it is. I, I don't know if, um, it's, 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 I think that's where a lot of it changed for me. And, and I will tell you that, um, I wrote this at the end of the book was, um, uh, Sandy hook, Sandy hook was the, was it for me that I didn't know anybody there. I don't know anybody there. I haven't interacted, met anyone there. I, uh, I just know that my daughter was the age of some of those kids. And, uh, and, and one thing that, that I think a lot of people tend to forget about Sandy Hook, which we all want to forget, I get it, is the, are the adults who died too, the teachers. Um, and I remember reading that there was a, one of the teachers was found cradling one of the, one of the teachers found cradling one of the kids. That's how they found her. And it's, it's, just, it's horrible, you know, it's such a horrible situation. And I just, and I don't know why it, it affected me like that. I, I, I think I just, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would have felt the same way before I was a father, but I just don't want to see it happen again. I don't want to see it ever happen again. Nobody does, but I don't, I really don't want to see it ever happening. I mean, like I want to really like do something about it and I, I hope other people do too, you know, and I, I don't think it'd take a lot if we have more people to get involved, you know, and, and, and get involved with more proactive interventions. And that concludes the first part of our interview with author and former U.S. Secret Service agent Jason Wells. To hear the second part of that interview, tune into the next episode of Inside the Law, where Jason talks about how schools and businesses are playing the odds. Instead of proactively preparing to avoid the next instance of mass violence. I think they play the odds. There's 144,000 public schools in America and what 90,000 private schools in America. And I think they play the odds that statistically it's just not going to happen at their place. And, and offices and corporations, they look around, they go, well, statistically it's, it's infinitesimally small that something's going to happen here. But they're willing to do enough to have lockdown drills. To keep track of all our episodes and see the show notes and links, visit our website, insidethelaw.co. That's insidethelaw.co. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to our wonderful guest, Jason Wells.